Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? It's getting a little bit warmer, but I guess that's what happens in the summer. Oh, we've, I'm in Texas right now and we've conceded that there's nothing we can do about the heat. You know, you just stay indoors. You just don't go. Oh, air conditioning. So recently I came across an article about Michigan's social studies standards. And Mm -hmm. I'm not from Michigan, but this particular one caught my eye. In the article, it says that the new draft or the proposed draft of the K through 12 standards that's now under review removes all references to gay rights, Roe v. Wade, and climate change and scales down references to the KKK and the NAACP. Uh, that seems problematic. Yeah, it's... I know last uh, last podcast we were talking about curriculum, explicit curriculum, and hidden curriculum. Is there an erased curriculum? Is that like a phrase that we just haven't come across? or Or what do you do if you're you know, for a curriculum that's just gone and disappeared from And I realize that teachers can still teach it, but what does that do to, I don't know, like history is being erased. And I realize that it's not being erased, but you know what I mean? It's coming out of this document. Yeah. I guess it's the, the idea we usually think of pulling, you know, those curriculum topics like, like LGBTQ histories out of the null bin you know, right. and bringing those into the curriculum, it's but we don't often think about, oh, now we're sticking them back in the null bin and we're, we're, uh, ignoring those topics. It's interesting because one of the Twitter accounts I follow is called, I think, Unerased History. And it's about LGBTQ histories yeah. that, you know, are, and the movement to get those included. And we know that's happened. And I think, uh, Mark Helmsing in uh, episode 81 mentioned that several states have started to more explicitly include LGBTQ histories. But yeah, what do you do? It's, it's, there's something really damaging, obviously, about it not being in the curriculum, but then also the idea of it being there and then being gone again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I realize that again, these are just frameworks or you know standards, and that teachers can do whatever they want. If they've been teaching uh, Roe v. Wade or gay rights, they can continue to do that. But it's just the fact that it's ripped out of the standards. I think is is a statement that Michigan has proposedly made. Well, and it's obviously, I, I would argue that social studies classrooms are the places we should be discussing issues. Although I would say that LGBTQ issues, um, you know, there's a recent article, I think Wayne Jurnell did it, that argued that those are not controversial, shouldn't be considered controversial issues in schools anymore. That yeah. we, you know, we should, based on our current politics, we should have moved past that. And those are just issues being taught. And, and you know, so that's very problematic. The very idea... But however, even if they were controversial issues, right, these other issues that also I don't think climate change should be a controversial issue either um, in particular. I mean, uh, in all of these, even if they are controversial issues, we should be discussing them in social studies classes. This should be the space where we learn to have 
deliberations on topics where maybe everyone doesn't agree. Um, but again, uh, I don't, I don't think LGBTQ rights, uh, right. would be a debate I would be having in my class. Do we have a guest today that can kind of shine some light on how to, I don't know, how to unerase or, or how to shine light or how to use social studies to discuss LGBTQ rights? We do. And we have really one of the pioneers of this work, especially in the social studies today. And so we would love to welcome into the podcast, JB Mayo. Welcome. Thanks, guys. How are you? Good. We are good. We are good. good. JB, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. But uh, before I do that, let me just say um, pioneer is a bit strong. I appreciate that. But uh, I would be remiss if I didn't thank people like Steve Thornton, um, Margaret Crocco. Those are the folks who really pioneered this work. I'm just following what they started in the early 2000s when I was a little baby doc. But anyway. We agree to disagree, but go on. Okay. So anyway, so I'm a former teacher. I taught middle school for... Uh, seven years in Virginia, social studies course, primarily geography and U.S. history. Then, curiously or not so curiously, during that time, between, let's see, 95, 2001, the death of Matthew Shepard happened, 1998. And that was uh, significant uh, for many reasons. But for me personally, I was a closeted gay teacher. And even though Matthew's death didn't empower me to come out to my kids, let me say I was teaching in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia area. And despite recent events last year, Charlottesville is a wonderful place, by the way. Um, <laughs> but at that point, it was, again, 1998. I wasn't at a place where I was able to come out. But certainly, Matthew Shepard's death made me much more intentional about talking about LGBTQ stuff. And beforehand, I wouldn't even mention it because my fear was so intense that even discussing those issues, I feared would cause people to, to question, why are you talking about that? What's your connection? Which could have led to discomfort explaining beyond just the curricular benefits, why it was personally important. Right. So anyway, that's that's the context um, I come at. After teaching seven years, went off, started to get a PhD in curriculum and instruction, and I've been at the University of Minnesota uh, ever since 2005. And the, my focus, the focus of my work is on... We're teachers, we're kids, we're histories. My dissertation at the University of South Florida was about how gay men, gay male teachers navigate difficult spaces. Very personal, as you can guess, because in South Florida, again, we're talking 2002 to 2005, wasn't a very friendly place for gay teachers. Florida itself has a very specific and troublesome history with gay teachers, i.e. the 1970s, I'm forgetting her name, but some former Miss America went on a crusade to get all gay teachers out of the profession. Oh, God. Yeah, and that history is still a part of the conversation, or at least it was in the early 2000s. But anyway, I knew there were gay folks teaching, obviously, and so I wanted to figure out, if I could, 
how they navigated that very tenuous space in schools. So that was my dissertation topic, which led to a few articles, and I've been focused on gay teachers, gay kids, gay histories uh, ever since. So that's my background. Very thankful. I got enough uh, attention that in publications that tenure happened, so I'm secure, I'm safe. I was actually warned one time as a young scholar not to be the gay professor because it was like I was being pigeonholed into one category. And I joke now, I've been the gay professor for a while. It's working for me. So I'm good with that. So anyway, that's enough about me, I think. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about, though, your experiences? as Because I knew as a teacher that I had um, gay colleagues. and But it was kind of like just people didn't talk about it. There's just a silence around it. Um, do you think, how do you think things have, have changed in recent years and how have things not changed? So it really does depend on where you are. So again, personal context coming from small town and then small city, Virginia, where I certainly felt in the 90s, early 2000s, I couldn't be out. And there was another male teacher at the middle school where I taught. He was older than me, and he also was closeted, although we were out to each other. But anyway, fast forward, here I am now in very progressive Minneapolis in the surrounding area, and I've been doing some work with teachers in a specific district, not Minneapolis or St. Paul, but a first ring suburb. And in this district, the teachers did not have a LGBTQ affinity group. So we started one. And I learned that depending on the school where you teach determines how out you can be. Because right here in progressive Minneapolis, I have a woman who does not reveal to her students or to her colleagues that she is married to a woman and at this point still cannot. Three miles away, in a different school in the same district, we have another woman with pictures of her wife on her desk and her children, and it is celebrated. So it depends. Um, what shocked me, I never thought I would meet a person in a city here that would be positive. Now, if I was in this pick on Bemidji, way out in northern Minnesota, maybe, but not here. And so I imagine, again, this replicates itself over the throughout the country. Um, in my hometown, which I just left just yesterday, <laughs> um, I know for a fact that there is a, a GSA in my old high school, which blows my mind. But I also know that the gym teachers, who I figured were lesbians back in the 80s, are still not out. <laughs> so that hasn't changed. So anyway... It, it varies. It's a long-winded answer, Dan, to your question. Of course, I think it's safer for teachers now than it has been, but it isn't. We aren't in a place yet where I can say all teachers are safe to be who they are completely in a K-12 setting. Yeah, and unfortunately, and we had um, a, a teacher in uh, Mansfield, which is kind of in the area where I'm at, who was as an art teacher, Stacy Bailey, um, who. Um, I think has been has won awards and simply in mentioning her partner 
was, I think, uh, put on leave from, from the school district for, for nothing else besides that. And it's kind of stunning to see the bigotry, but I guess in some ways it's, it's not surprising, but to have then, you know, there's so many, I think, ways that adults in our country are failing these days and where kids are doing such a better job of leading movements. And you see like, having young kids in an elementary school have to speak on behalf of how much they like their teacher because the parents have bigoted views. It's sad to watch and a little depressing. Certainly. I think that that's the biggest issue. Too many adults still equate homosexuality with somehow influencing their children in negative ways. You know, again, this might sound crazy, but Part of my fear of coming out years ago was I was afraid folks would think I'm a pedophile. That's ridiculous. And yet, here we are, and I still think people equate that and also sexual orientation and sex, which, my God, two different things. But I digress. You know, it's interesting that we're talking about teachers who are being treated you know, differently in different areas because you can only imagine the effects that students who um, who are gay, straight, or, you know, on the spectrum, like how they would feel in that community as well. So I think it's a missed opportunity, right? So um, I certainly believe that teachers have a responsibility to teach all kids, right? But if you come from a particular population, I am African-American, and I know that my African-American kids look at me differently. When they see me, I think there is some role modeling going on that's indeed a positive on a different level. And I certainly believe that kids who are figuring out who they are, whether it be sexual orientation, gender identity, whatever, if there are adults who they can turn to and see, like, huh, all right, you went through this and you're okay, then guess what? I might be okay too. It is hard. But when we don't allow the adults who have contact with our kids to be who they are fully, then we can't expose that part of ourselves and kids are losing us. If I had had a, a mentor or just if it hadn't been so much shame around LGBT stuff, I wouldn't have been 30 years old coming out. You know, if that gym teacher back at Powhatan High School could have been out openly. I could have seen her. Something in my brain would have clicked, you know? If Miss Crump can do it, maybe I can too. But the fact is, there were no role models, but there were plenty of messages saying, you're wrong, you're evil, you should be ashamed, hide it, cover it, whatever the case may be. Those are the messages kids are getting when we can't be who we are as full human beings. And that's very damaging. So it seemed that it's important then to have spaces where students can talk about their sexual orientation, can have support, can address these issues. And I know you've written a bit about the role of gay straight alliances or LGBTQ clubs in schools. Can you tell us about like, are those, have, have those spaces been successful in helping students? Um, are there other places, uh, that, that schools can, other things schools can do to support students and teachers? Yeah, certainly. So GSAs have been around since the late 80s. Uh, there are now about 
over 4,500 of them. They exist in every state and many colleges at the, both the middle school and the high school level. I will say that since 2015, the term gay straight alliance is now evolving into gender and sexuality alliance. It's more inclusive. Gay and straight still puts people in um, a binary. There's so many in-between spaces where kids identify. So gender and sexuality alliances certainly where they exist have helped not only kids who identify who are LGBTQ plus, but also it's helped the whole community understand difference in a more nuanced way, right? So the idea that we are creating allies, kids who normally may or may probably won't have exposure to kids who are queer, this opens their eyes to difference in ways that are very beneficial. So these clubs aren't just for gay kids, obviously. They, they really do benefit straight kids as well. And in terms of other spaces, there's some schools that have started social justice clubs or just diversity clubs, multicultural clubs. I believe any space in a school where difference is highlighted is a positive because in my mind, we are moving in a direction where we tend to be around folks who are more like us than not like us. And schools are still a space and for some, the only space where they're going to meet people who aren't like them. And that's really important when you live in a diverse country, a diverse world, the way that we do. People are getting too homogenized, again, in my opinion. So sure, GSAs are good. Other spaces are also good for that as well. Our school, we all we just transitioned to Gender and Sexuality Alliance. Uh, I just talked to my the advisor after reading one of your pieces. You were talking about the importance of teachers who are allies, if it's part of the culture, to make their presence there. And I thought that was interesting. So I did ask him after reading your piece if that would be something that you know might be good for, for our school. And he said that he would talk to the students about it. And so it was actually, I was really kind of excited. And obviously, I was inspired after reading your, your work yesterday. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, you're referring to, I guess, the 2013 piece. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. That's okay. So yeah, so I think the idea that other adults need to be identified or it's helpful because the one GSA sponsor can't carry that responsibility, right, alone. And in fact, if the GSA advisor is the only safe spot, then it's not doing much for school. So having other adults involved certainly indicates there are other spaces. But the other part about that article that I hope came through is that GSA is certainly a learning space, right? There's a specific pedagogy that goes into GSA spaces that have proven to be really effective. The whole knowledge, reflection, um, action pieces, right? So kids can, all kids could be involved. But the fact that you honed in on the idea that multiple adults can and should be involved I'll take it. That's awesome. And we will get that article linked in our show notes. It's, of course, JB has been published in Theory and Research and Social Education more than one time. 
And that article was published in 2013. It's titled Expanding the Meaning of Social Education, What Social Studies Can Learn from Gay-Straight Alliances. So we'll link that certainly in the show notes. Um, I've mentioned on the episode before, when I was teaching in Oklahoma City, in probably what would be considered somewhat conservative area, we uh, had a gay-straight alliance start at our school, I think during my second year teaching. And there was a lot of you know, problems around it. Uh, the students were really brave and smart and handled everything really well. But if I could go back, I think the thing that I would do differently more than anything is I think my students knew that I supported them a lot, but I think I would have supported that sponsor of that club more. Um, she faced a lot of backlash and I think it was really hard for her. And, uh, you know, we focus on the kids sometimes and I talk to teachers about, uh, we need support too. Teaching's hard and draining profession. And especially in an instance where you get attacked, um, you give so much and then to feel attacked, you know, for whatever the reason is, but in this case on an issue where you're supporting students, uh, is really problematic. Have you, is that, has that been often a, a problem is that teachers are on their own, that you just have one advocate in a school and that they don't have the support that, that they need to be, you know, leaders in the school and help students? Yeah, definitely. And honestly, Dan, it's something that, because my focus was on the kids um, and, and thinking through what they're doing and thinking back to my own experience as a kid, um, I had to be reminded that, yeah, you're right. Teachers need support, too. And the GSAs that I have looked at and now in four different states, every single one that has lasted it's because the adults have had support from each other, but also from the administration. The administration makes a huge difference in terms of how easy or how difficult is it to maintain the club. Will the club be shifted to an area or time that's really inconvenient? You know, there are all kinds of ways to make it hard for a GSA to meet. And that's where administration comes in. And, of course, as you mentioned, just the idea that some people in any setting and for, well, in my opinion, silly reasons will be opposed. And if there aren't allies to counteract that opposition, then with everything that teachers go through, sure, it's easy to understandable why they would not persist. So, and it's easy to, to focus a lot on some of these problems and the discrimination students face, but I think the, the opposite side of the coin is that this is LGBT Pride Month. And so, what are the ways that we can show positive affirmations and celebrate LGBT students and teachers and, uh, not only, um, in our school, but in our society and in our curriculum? So, the way to acknowledge, in my opinion, and, and show pride for is to stop telling partial stories. Okay. Um, our curriculum, particularly in the social studies, particularly in history, is chock full of individuals who identify as LGBTQ, right? And yet we don't tell that part of their story. And I'm not suggesting that people are important or significant because they are queer. But, but there are many people who we've already said have done significant things 
and we talk about it openly. And guess what? Many of them were queer. So why not tell the whole story? Why tell the partial story? So that's how, in my mind, you show full acknowledgement in who they are as a complete person. And I say that, and at the same time, I realize that just highlighting who the individuals were and are isn't enough. You know, that that's a very superficial sort of, if that's all you do, that's better than nothing, of course. But in the end, it's superficial if people don't understand that regardless of how you identify, we need to start treating humanity and humans better. We cannot, you know, just say, well, this trait's an okay trait. I'll tolerate that trait or you're not good for that trait. We have a hard time seeing people as fully human. That's the bigger issue. And I would say, particularly given our current leadership, people who have that perspective are empowered to voice it. So this is a great time to bring out more complete stories rather than all the partial stories. And in so doing, we are indeed showing the pride for those who identify as lesbian, gay, and bisexual. Do you mind giving us an example? So I'll pick an easy one. And maybe this is, maybe, you know, we don't highlight, uh, I'll just use civil rights, why not? Um, Bayard Rustin, he may be mentioned as, at this point, as an openly queer African-American man who was a major force behind the speeches that Martin Luther King Jr. gave. Some people might even know he was kept in speaking at the March on Washington because he was out. But not enough people know about it. People, we, teachers, talk about indigenous people, Native Americans, all the time. I mean, if there's something that a kindergartner and a senior in high school have in common, they will know the myth of Thanksgiving, right? They've, we've talked about indigenous people in too many times we talk about them as being acted upon versus acting, of course, but they're a known entity. But very few people at the K-12 level know that indigenous people have celebrated multi-genders from the very beginning. That gender expression for them being open is common. And why wouldn't you celebrate the whole person? And recently they're known as two-spirit people. But among the Navajo, their name is the Dene, for example. They celebrate six different genders. Why didn't I know this as a middle school kid or elementary kid? The women in the early 1920 women's society circles, right? They are friendship groups. Well, guess what? They were more than friends. And they were talking about women's rights, the right to vote and, and being equal citizens with men. But there's also a whole narrative about equality among the sexes, particularly when the sexes were liking each other, same gender. Those kind of conversations just don't come up. So there are tons. I mean, there is queerness throughout our American history, our world history. Um, we don't need to talk or debate if 
Alexander was bisexual. But yeah, he was. He enjoyed everybody. Cool for him. Um, <laughs> so those those are the kind of things that just, and it's not, in my mind, dangerous. I'll say it again. It's just telling a more complete story and not leaving out the pieces that aren't convenient. I'm glad you mentioned Bayard Rustin. I remember learning about him um, after I'd studied the civil rights movement. You know, I probably gone through it at least one time in my history classes and then learned about him and was like, his story is so integral to the civil rights story. It, it was, it took effort to take him out of the story. I've thought about this question a lot. How do we address the ways Bayard Rustin's story is the ways that he was faced bigotry with the, even within the movement and the way he was pushed out of certain events from speaking um, when he was threatened by a U.S. Senator from, I think from New York and face various things. Those are more open, but I think sometimes I even think about the opportunities that people who are marginalized in history didn't have. And that's why it's so important to tell people's stories as history, not just tell the stories of famous people, because some people would have been famous if they didn't face bigotry. From a social studies perspective, what is the way that we address historical figures that we suspect probably were gay, but in their own time were closeted? How, how do we, you know, Gay historians who study gay histories address those those topics. So one of the, the challenges uh, when I speak with teachers locally about again telling more complete stories, they come back and say, "Well, it's more work," and they themselves don't know some of the stuff. Right? How do we find it? And I simply say this: Yes, it's more work. And if you can imagine that it's taken, it has been a concentrated effort to keep certain things covered and clearly to uncover, to unlearn and relearn, it's going to take some effort. So that's number one. It ain't going to be easy. But the advantage is that we have now is that there that thing called the Internet. And if you do a little bit of homework. There's tons of information that is easily accessible with the click of a few buttons. There are organizations. You mentioned one earlier, History Unerased is a great organization. I am absolutely blanking on a major glisten just came to me. The Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network has tons of resources for teachers. Again, the click of a button. The Southern Poverty Law Center has resources for teachers. The point is, if you Google search, and everybody can do that, gay and history, you'll get so many hits, you won't know what to do with them. Now, a responsible person will verify sources. And again, that takes some work, but there's enough out there. And then once you start down that path, you'll see that there's even more. A colleague of mine in Iowa State has a 400-slide PowerPoint that he continues to build every year because he's continuing to learn. And I have shared that PowerPoint slide with, I would say, probably 200 teachers at this point. And then you do your own thing. So there's no good excuse or not knowing, or at least not trying to know about someone's more complete story. So that's what I would say. 
I got very excited this morning. I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts besides ours called Criminal. And it was an episode about the Lavender Scare, which I had absolutely no idea starts when the Red Scare starts. And it was, it's all about this woman who was kicked out of the Air Force because she was, she was a lesbian. Uh, she was very ashamed of it. And then recently she, her story has been told and, and she was, um, uh, she was, she led a parade and it was just this amazing story that I was so happy to, like, it just randomly popped up and I was like, holy cow, this is kind of amazing. And I want to tell people. And so now I am. <laughs> and that's exactly the kind of thing that can happen and will happen over and over once people just start acknowledging that queer people have done significant things um, since essentially day one, right? So that's great that you found that. It's awesome. JB, we will definitely work with you to try to build a nice set of resources in our show notes. So people who listen to this episode will easily be able to find links to all the things we're mentioning and talking about. But we also wanted to highlight today another recent publication that you had in social education. In October of 2017, social education had a special issue on LGBTQ issues in the social studies. And you had one of the articles which was titled LGBTQ Media Images and Their Potential Impact on Youth in Schools. Can you tell us, first thing, congratulations for your publication, but can you also tell us a little bit about what you wrote in that article? Sure. And, and I'll also, again, I have to give credit where credit is due. Gloria Alter, um, the guest editor, you know, she was persistent in getting this through. Let's just say in every organization with all the good intentions, folks are still slow to put out there LGBT stuff. So the fact that this is the first uh, LGBT-focused issue of social ed tells us something, right? And it took an effort to get it done. I'll stop there. So about the article, you know, it's funny. I was just I was just home in my hometown as of yesterday, and I was talking to my mom about the idea um, that came to me a few years ago that led to this article, and. When I was teaching, I remember specifically being very proud that I got to World War II in the long history survey, right? <laughs> and there was this particular image that popped up, and I used it. It's called the kiss. You, everyone's seen it. It's, you know, the sailor, they're celebrating. You just defeated Japan, and there's this celebration that erupts in New York. And the sailor is kissing this nurse. She's bent over, right? It's called the kiss. Well, the backstory of that is essentially that was an assault. He grabbed her out of the crowd and just kissed her. Now, the narrative might be, right, that they were lovers, they were boyfriend and girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. They went off and got married. They were so happy. Uh uh. One kiss, that was it. But even more, I was thinking about what that kiss tells us what are the messages behind the kiss right and that becomes particularly poignant when my good friend brandon who is marine brandon morgan and dalen wells on facebook back in 2013 maybe 2012 he came home and brandon jumps into the arms of dalen they were boyfriends and gives him this big old kiss and on my facebook feed that was awesome 
They got all kinds of kudos for it. And I started thinking, wow, what would happen if that kiss were actually put out there, right? Same kind of thing. Military guy comes home. He's happy to see his lover. And kiss. And so when Gloria came up with the idea of having a full journal article or a full journal spread on LGBT issues, that's where it came from. My friendship with those two fellas and thinking about my history and my teaching. And so essentially, I did a comparison of the kiss versus other kisses. I learned that in the Navy, for example, it's now a tradition. When you go off for deployment and you come back after six months, whatever, there's actually a couple chosen for the official kiss photo. And so, yeah, who knew, right? So they have this thing they do now. It's called the kiss photo. And in 2011, a lesbian couple was chosen in Virginia Beach as the official kiss photo. And I had never heard of that one. And that came before Brandon and Dalen, right? Um, So I looked it up, found it. And so that's the third image I use. I use the image of those two women kissing in Virginia Beach, comparing it to Dalen and Brandon and then the original. And just thinking about what images, what messages are sent to kids when they see images that become like iconic, right? Because all of a sudden, again, there's a whole story behind the kiss. It just isn't a photo. It's a whole narrative. Expectations. Um, and how might expectations be shaken up if we see two women or two men? And I got to tell you, of, of all the things I've written, this one made me pause. And it made me pause because social ed is on many, many, many teachers' desks. And the images I chose are just that. They are people kissing. So I worried about the whole thing with people, oh, it's sex, it's this, it's that. And I thought, no, I'm not going to let that bother me. But anyway, this article has been one of those that I really am most proud of because it's reaching regular people and hopefully lots of people. I haven't really heard from a lot of people in terms of impact, but I hope it's help people consider what kind of images they use and when they use an image what kind of story is being told beyond the official story right because that first one completely heteronormative completely misogynistic um the fact that you can just grab a woman and, and kiss her without permission which probably isn't really well known but the point is teachers need to think through how images impact kids. And I hope this article opens some doors for people to do just that. I like that you had a list of questions for teachers to consider uh, when picking images. I thought that was extremely helpful. I think it is going to make a difference, JB, and I, I, I hope it already is. Uh, I think, you know, media images stick with us so much. You know, it's we can read about things all day, but the pictures and images you see, you know, those things can be different. And so for students, especially when you think about um, students who have don't who maybe don't have friends who are LGBT and they get to spend time thinking about images of gay people kissing, transgender people kissing, you know, people who are different from them. It's just develops a familiarity and a, oh, 
that's normal too, right? Or normal's not a real thing. And they get to see it. And so I think for, of course, it, it could be affirming for students who are, you know, um, LGBTQ, but it can also uh, hopefully help people grow who are, can become allies, who can stronger allies and advocates for everyone. And so um, we definitely recommend everyone check out that issue of social education, um, again, from October 2017. and has a lot of great articles that address a variety of issues about where LGBTQ uh, people are, are found and should be found in the curriculum where they're excluded, issues of bullying, um, all kinds of uh, addressing LGBTQ people in uh, children's books. So there's a lot of really good stuff in that issue. And so we're, of course, glad and not surprised at all that you were a part of it. Well, I appreciate it. One more thing I'll say about it, too, is that where queer people show up in the media and we're everywhere, we clearly movies, TV, blah, blah, blah. Right. But there's been a certain way that we show up. I would say in the 80s, I'll start there. I'm an 80s kid. If there was a gay character, he or she, we weren't talking beyond the binary, so he or she at that point ended up dead or at least beat up and persecuted, right? Because the gay, the queer one had to go. And only recently have gay characters stepped up in a way where they weren't killed off. And I, I want to highlight the importance of that kind of message, right? That before, if we were included, there was a there was a cost to being queer. I think we've moved to a point, at least in non-mainstream media, meaning you know, cable TV, where where characters thrive. Okay, but that shouldn't take away or keep us from still remembering that yes, gay people are, can thrive and we do thrive. But there is still an ongoing struggle to to do that, to do better, be better, and be fully human. I never want to have victim status. That's not something I believe in. But bad things are still happening to queer people, right? And that we can't forget that. I don't want to have this sort of Pollyanna perspective that everything is okay. Everything is not okay, but everything isn't dire either. Somewhere in the, in the middle is where the truth is. And I hope that the progression I used in that article indicates that. It will help people to think through that and then go beyond my article and look at some of the resources and, and do some other self-discovery about where people are. And that goes beyond the queerness. It's about gender expression, ethnicity, race, the, all those matter. So I'm hoping people will see the bigger picture. JB, do you have some final takeaways for students and teachers who are LGBTQ and allies? For sure. Regardless of how you identify, I want teachers to, to be brave because particularly in metropolitan areas, and I would hope in most states now, the standards are such that you can interpret them broadly, right? And so if there is a way to expand people, young people's minds about who's in and who's out, but mostly who's in, bring folks in, you know, bring in people of color, bring in queerness, bring in different gender expressions, because you have every right to do so. And the kids in front of you 
need it. Many of them are demanding it, and some are in a place where they can't demand it, but they still need you. So every small town kid out there like me um, deserves a teacher who will have the courage to let that child know that you're not a freak. There are people like you, and there have been people like you for a very long time. So that would be a message I want to send to all teachers out there. That's a great one. So, well, thank you so much, JB, for joining us today and for just all your work that you've done. Um, I'm going to still keep calling you a pioneer. Sorry if you don't want me to. <laughs> I, I, I think you, you've done so much work to move forward these conversations in our field, and we really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate that, too. And I'm not done yet. Got a few more years left in me. <laughs> yeah, you do. You do, for yeah. sure. JB, where can our listeners find you or your work online? So that's an interesting question. I recently have put some stuff on ResearchGate, which is open access. But there's a tension between having your work out and open because, say, for example, the journal wants there to be downloads from the journal site. So I'm still working through how I can put out links to my work as opposed to just giving out the stuff. But if there are people out there who have questions, mayo at umn.edu, I will answer questions till you're blue in the face. Um, and once I get your online email, I'll give you my cell number. We can talk if you want to. But uh, so, so my work is definitely available, um, but still working through what kind of sites to be fair to all parties involved. And JB is definitely welcoming. I can just say, personal story, I first showed up to KUFA, the higher ed social studies organization, knowing almost no one at those meetings. And JB was the first one, I think, um, along with a couple other people, former guest Catherine Ingebretson, who kind of said, hey, Dan, come on, let us introduce you to people. And that was really meaningful for me because it's the type of thing like, you know, it led me to a lot of connections. So uh, JB, uh, you know, walks the walk when he says that. So I do my best. So thank you again so much for joining us. Uh, we certainly do hope to continue the discussion online, other spaces, in our classrooms, everywhere we can. Okay. Thanks. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat, hit us up. Add Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, in anywhere you want us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. It helps people find this podcast. You and can it find fills me up on my refrigerator. <laughs> we do. Michael does. He's he's starting to just put them all on his wall as wallpaper. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education Podcast. Signing off. <laughs>